Thanks for joining us today. If you have any questions, please email us at info at If you would like to support this ministry financially, visit us at capitalchristian.com and click the Give button in the top right corner. You good? Thank you. Thank you, Sydney. Let's give her a hand. Sydney, a hand. Nothing like last minute. You guys, thank God for Thanksgiving, right? Am I right? You feel full? You look full is what I'm trying to say. I need you to be a little, little bit more lively, you know? You know, no one really, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm going to tell you a little dirty little secret. Nobody likes preaching this Sunday after Thanksgiving. Nobody. No preacher. Nobody. Somehow I drew the short straw. Just kidding. I love preaching. I'm happy to do it. But I'll be honest, guys. It's a tough crowd the Sunday after Thanksgiving. You're full. You're feeling guilty for how full you are. Who feels guilty? A little bit guilty. A little bit guilty. Um, I decided it's not Thanksgiving and the 5,000 calories that we should be worried about. Like, everybody deserves a cheat day, you know? And your little turkey trot, your turkey bowl didn't do anything to burn any calories, okay? Your little workout in the morning, it doesn't count towards those 5,000. The problem is it set really bad pattern and habits. Anyone else feeling it? For three days, I've been eating bad now, not just Thursday. It's like yesterday at 10.30, I found myself in front of my refrigerator. I don't even know why I have eggnog in my refrigerator, and I'm drinking it from, like, the carton. Like, who am I? I'm a savage. It's like, what if I, I don't even, I don't even eat dairy, but somehow I was like, eggnog sounds good at 10.30 at night. Um, So, you guys, we got to whip this back into shape, you know? You just got to get ready for Christmas now. Let's do good until Christmas and then do it all over again. You feel good about that? Okay. Well, I'm, I'm waiting for you to, uh, to be lively. I know you're full of turkey, but who's ready for the word? You want to be full of Jesus? You want to be full of the Bible as well as turkey? Um, it's going to be a good day. You know, uh, Pastor Chris, I love Pastor Chris. I love this series, Learning to, to Be on Mission. Have you enjoyed this series in Philippians? Learning to be on mission. Pastor Chris gave me the most scriptures of anyone who has preached in this pulpit in all time, so we're going to have a good time today, okay? You ready to read a lot of the Bible? We're going to finish chapter two, and then we're going to get to chapter three, because uh, it's awesome. Are you ready for lots of Bible? Who's ready? Who's got their Bible? Who's going to read the screen? Yeah, me too. I actually am, but I have a cheat one behind you. Okay, we're going to go to Philippians 2. I'm Tracy, by the way. What's your name? Go ahead and tell me your name. Nice to meet you, Bruce, on the front row, Mark Francie. Okay. Uh, Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 19, it says this. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. Can you imagine if that's what was said about you? There is no one like you who will be as concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth. How, how, as a son with a father, he has served me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. Verse 24, and I trust in the Lord that, I short, that, that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus. Someone should name their child Epaphroditus. You can call him E-Money, Epaph. Some Paffy boy. It could be a girl. I'm not, I'm not judging. Epaphroditus, you could call her Paffy. My brother and fellow worker and fellow... So- hey, we're running out of creative names. It's going to circle around. Someone's going to name their kid Epaphroditus. My brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister t- to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Verse 28, and I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor in such men. For he nearly died for his work of Christ, risking his life to complete that was lacking in your service to me. So we have the closing of Philippians chapter 2. Just a real uh, quick refresher. It's Pastor Paul. Apostle Paul is writing this to the church in Philippi. He's not there. Where is he? Anyone remember where our our man Pastor Paul is? He's in prison in Rome. He's he's chained to a guard, and he's writing this letter to to Philippi. And he's saying this. uh, He's telling these people in Philippi, these, these Jewish Christian converts and these Gentile converts, he wants to send them two guys. 
He wants to send them two examples. Now, have you ever read anything in the Bible and you thought, what does this portion of scripture have to do with anything else? Did God make a mistake by divinely inspiring this part of scripture? Have you ever felt that? You're lying if you don't admit that. Have you read Leviticus, right? Have you read the Old Testament? You're like, really, is that? But this is what I'm gonna say. Everything is divinely inspired. There's no mistakes in the Bible. Every portion of scripture has a point and a reason and a purpose. And even this part of scripture, you're like, what is, what is Paul talking? I mean, he's been doing so good. I mean, we've been really excited talking about rejoice and just wait till you get to chapter three and chapter four, it gets really exciting. And then all of a sudden you have this little part in chapter two. Are you with me? Anyone feeling it? You were writing, you felt a little bit uninspired. Your turkey set in again with me. But this is important for us to understand. This is not a mistake in, in, in our Bible. This is not a mistake in, in the Philippian letter. It's important for Paul to tell and remind these people in Philippi that there are two really good examples for you. You know what? You want to you want to live this life. You want to follow Jesus. You want a good Christian example. You want to know what it is to be a part of the Christian story. I'm going to send you two guys. I'm going to send you Timothy. Man, he is full of care and concern. He's learned from the best of the best, Pastor Paul. He knows how to take care of people. He knows the word. He knows the resurrection power of Jesus. And he's a good example to follow. And then we got this guy, Epaphroditus. You know, and he's been sick, but God has had mercy on him and healed him. What great two men! Can, can we send to Philippi for you to be example, these two, Timothy and Epaphroditus? And so this is, this is what it means to follow Jesus. These two men are what prove to the church in Philippi and to those that are gonna read this letter that this is what it means to follow Jesus. These two have given it all for the sake of God and building his kingdom. They've done it. Have you ever felt, well, you know what's so great about going to church? One of the best things about being part of church is that there's always people that are a little bit further along in the journey than you. And you can go, oh gosh, yeah, that person is doing a good job. I need, to, I need to get to know that person. I need to see what they're doing. Isn't that what's so great about the, the community of faith? Is that you have examples. You have people that you can learn from, you can glean from, that have gone through the journey. Maybe they've been sick and God has rescued them and healed them. And you can, be, you can go to them and be like, hey, can you pray for me? Can you encourage me? Or maybe there's somebody who's experienced loss and then it's like, oh man, I'm, I'm going through it. Can you help me in this? This is what the community of faith is all about. So this is not a mistake in scripture. In fact, this is important for us and it even is important to build upon what we're gonna get to to chapter three and then on to chapter four. But you have to understand that Paul thinks it's important that the people in Philippi and the people in this room today, we have some good examples. We have people who have lived the life well, that have lived the Christian story well. And so here Paul says, he spends a whole chunk of scripture saying, this is important that you have some good examples and I'm gonna send them to you. How many of you are grateful for the good examples that God has in your community, in your life, in your church right now? Paul did too. Paul thought it was just as important. And so this is really the heart of the Christian story is that there are people that are before you, they've gone before you, they have walked us during, they're like, hey, I'm gonna help you. Isn't it the best feeling when you're going through something and somebody goes, me too? Like when you ate so much Thanksgiving, like am I the only one who was eating rolls like they're air? Like, I think rolls are air, like with no caloric intake, right? It was like, oh, I don't care how many I've had. Rochelle and I, my sister and I were like, her daughter, her two-year-old daughter just kept passing us rolls. We're like, okay, I feel like it's the Lord. We're supposed to eat them. I'm like, how many rolls have we eaten, Rochelle? And we're like, I don't even, I don't even eat bread, you guys. I don't know. I'm like, what's happening? It's like, we, we, I don't know what that had to do with anything, but I'm still feeling guilty about how many rolls I ate. Anyone feeling guilty about their food? Just me? Trust me. No, me too, me too. So that's what I feel, like you feel so encouraged when there are other people that are going through something, have experienced something, you're like, yeah, me too. And you're like, oh God, we can make this together. We can get through this. We can do this. That's the community of faith. That's the Christian story. And that is what Paul is concluding in chapter two, is telling you this is important. Don't miss this point. Don't skip past this in your Bible reading and think, ah, what's the big deal? Know this and receive this and understand this, that there are people that God sends in our world, in our life, as good examples for a reason, right? And this is important. Then we skip to, and then we move on to chapter three. We don't have a lot of time in chapter two. I told you, Pastor Chris gave me more verses than he will preach. Next week, he'll go four and we'll be like, oh my gosh, I get 42. Not kidding, I don't have 42. Some of you are like, about stood up and walked out. You're like, I'm not prepared for 42 verses. 
Philippians chapter three, starting in verse one, says this. Finally, I like this. Stop for a second. Finally, this is the problem. Paul, Paul normally when he says finally, he's ending the letter. If you've read any of Paul's letters, so we're like a little bit confused. Like, Paul, what's going on? You just said finally. And then if you know anything about Philippians, there's chapter three and chapter four. So clearly he's not finally, right? He sounds like, like, a, like a woman, kind of. Like, we're like, just one last thing. But it's not. Like, it's never, not just one last thing. Maybe Paul, some scholars say, maybe Paul was getting ready to end the letter, but maybe something, you know, he got wind of something that was going in Philippi and he realized he had to address one more thing. That's one idea. That's one, one thought. Or possibly this word in the Greek could also mean, and so on, or, and then I'm going to say, and then henceforth, or therefore, it could mean any or all of these things. So Paul m- might not have been getting ready to end, or maybe he was, but he wants to, we know he has something more important to say because he's got two more two more chapters to get all of it in. So we say, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. Remember this? Pastor Chris has talked about this. Rejoice in the Lord. It's not rejoicing or having joy based on your circumstances, right? We don't rejoice in the Lord because of what's going, what's good and what's not good, right? We rejoice in the Lord. This is the Christian story. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord. Remember, he's, he's chained to a prison guard as he's writing this. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. This, this first verse is already confusing. It's like, finally, you, are you stopping? You ending? What are you doing? You're rejoicing in the Lord. You're attached to a prison guard. And now you're saying the same things that you've already said. Paul has already probably talked about these things, these issues that he's going to address. But he don't mind. He's going to say it again. Because he knows how important it is to talk about the goodness of God and what he wants to tell the church in Philippi. So then he goes to this. And oh, my word, I love this. Look out for the dogs. Seem weird? Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. This is awkward. Verse two, right? Verse three says, for we are the circumcision who worship by the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Paul would have been an amazing Thanksgiving dinner guest, right? You cannot one up Paul. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. What a list of credentials. But whatever gain I had, Paul says, I counted it as loss for the sake of Christ. Verse eight. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him. Somebody say that, that I may know him, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. In the last verse, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Would you pray with me this morning, church? God, we just thank you for, we thank you for this Sunday after Thanksgiving, where we have so much to be thankful for, so much to be grateful for. Lord, if we get nothing else outside of you, Lord, it's enough. We're grateful for what you've done in and through our lives. Lord, and even today, God, I pray that you would remind us of that. Lord, that that our eyes would be focused on you. Our hearts would be centered on you. Lord, we'd be fixed on what you've done for us. We wouldn't be fixed on our circumstances or fixed on our feelings or fixed on our emotions or fixed on this or fixed on that. But our eyes would be centered and fixed on you. And Lord, we pray that it'd be your word that would speak. Lord, speak exactly what we need to hear, not what we want to hear, but what we need to hear right from your word, from your, from your scripture, from this text, from your word. Lord, we thank you would produce life and transformation. So say whatever you want to say in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So you liked Thanksgiving? Was it good? What's your favorite food? You can shout it out. Whoa, a lot of you don't eat? Is that what's going on? Did you, did you starve? Did you fast? Who fasted Thanksgiving? <laughs> We're not friends. <laughs> this will, you might as well leave. This message isn't for you. Uh, I, I like the yams. The yams are my favorite. But, no, oh, someone doesn't like yams. All right, well, calm down. I wasn't booing your food. Uh, <laughs> have whatever you want. My God, I just like yams. 
It's like dessert, but it's not. It's like a potato. Isn't that a vegetable? So it's like you get a vegetable, but you're really getting dessert. Um, clearly, I also love eggnog. I told you, I took eggnog out of the... What is wrong with me? Like, I got to pull it together. Our family, like your family or your friends or your Friendsgiving or your Thanksgiving, we have a lot of traditions. You have traditions in your family for holidays and especially for Thanksgiving. So in our family, um, it's a non-negotiable. We're going to have the cranberry salad that my dad's mom, my grandma Afton's, her recipe is passed down to all the generations. At every Thanksgiving, there will be cranberry salad, right? If we're traveling, we'll find a way. We'll make it, right? Wherever we go. I made it for our intern Friendsgiving this week, and they were like, this looks weird. We don't want to eat it. I'm like, eat it. I'm your pastor. You will eat it, and I made it for you. And they were like, oh, my God. She's so mean. And then they loved it because it might not look good, but it tastes delicious. Um, but the, when Mark came into our family, he inherited this tradition, didn't he, Mark? He wasn't quite sure how he felt about the cranberry salad. Now he lives for it, lives for it. Um, we, so our family, we watch the parade. Sometimes we do turkey trots, turkey bowls, whatever, whatever you feel like doing. Doesn't matter. It doesn't burn enough calories for all the food you're going to eat. But you still do it. Then we watch the parade. We watch the dog show. Who watches the dog show? Get a little bit of the dog show in. Um, I don't know who won this year. I didn't watch it. We know who won. What kind of dog? Nobody remembers. Okay. It's see how meaningful it is. These traditions change our lives. Let's hold on to them, guys. These traditions matter, clearly. Uh, so we watch the dog show. And then, of course, in our house, we watch the Dallas Cowboys every single Thanksgiving day. Where are you at, cowboy fans? Sweet Jesus. And most years we watch them lose. So that typically puts Pastor Chris in a bad mood on Thanksgiving. Um, you eat at weird times. These are all the traditions of Thanksgiving, right? It's like, what, what are we doing? Like, but you have all these traditions, right? And, uh, and this is what makes holidays holidays. This is what makes your family your family. Um, but, but the funny thing is, is, wouldn't it be weird if we invited people to our Thanksgiving or our homes or our families and we said, you can come be a part of this as long as you participate in every single one of these traditions. Like, you have to like these as much as we like them. That'd be super weird, right? Like, we invite people over, but if they don't want to watch the Cowboys, we're not going to make them. If they don't want to have the cranberry salad, although it's hurtful, they don't have to. Um, but they can eat rolls like air, just like me too. Like, if they feel like it, whatever, you know, the yams are good. But we wouldn't force people, right, to just abide by our traditions. They can think, oh, you can't really be a part of our family. You can't be at this table. You're going to go sit at the kids' table if you don't participate. Well, this is kind of what Paul's talking about here in Philippians 3. Is he's dealing with, and he, he's, he's hearing of these issues in Philippi of, of the Jewish Christians that are having a problem with the Gentile converts. Because the Gentile converts don't necessarily abide by all the traditions that the Jewish Christians think that they should be abiding by, which is circumcision and participating in their food laws and their, the 600 plus commandments and rituals and traditions that they have according to the Torah. And so the Jewish Christians are like, I don't think you understand. You're not really part of the family of God. We are. Our ancestry makes sure of that, our pedigree, uh, our food laws, what we do makes us a part of the family. But those of you who are trying to get into the family, I'm not sure you really fit at this Thanksgiving table. Like, it's absurd, right? We look at this and we read this and think it's ridiculous. And Paul thinks it's ridiculous. So he goes and he uses pretty choice language in Verse chapter, in, in verse two, I love this. I think this is so fascinating. If we could just spend all day on verse two just because it's crazy. He says this. Imagine someone saying this to you. Look out for the dogs. What does that mean? Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. This word dogs, um, I love this. Paul's the best. Paul would be the coolest person like ever to meet, right? So Paul is using the word dogs. He's saying watch out or look out, depending on your translation, for the dogs. Well, in this time, in ancient history, in, ancient, in the ancient time, the Judaizers, those that were believing that if you wanted to follow Jesus, if you wanted to be part of, of God's family, that you had to abide by all these ritual laws. You had to, you had to participate in circumcision. You had to, to obey the laws. And if you didn't, that's who they called dogs. So they'd refer to the Gentiles, those who were not circumcised, those who had different food laws than they did, those who didn't follow the Sabbath and the rituals and all the traditions, they called them dogs. So if you were walking around, can you imagine you're just walking in an ancient time, you're like watching, walking around Jerusalem or Antioch or something, you're just walking and they're like, hey dog. That's what they would call it. It was an insult. It was the greatest insult of their day. But this is what's so ironic and clever is that Paul's not calling the Gentiles dogs in this text. 
He says, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, and look out for those who mutilate the flesh. He's talking about the same group of people three times, and it's not the Gentiles. He's talking about the Judaizers. So he takes their rhetoric and turns it on them. So instead of insulting the Jews or the Gentiles, Jesus go, or Paul just goes and goes, okay, I'll turn your own language on you. And he says and calls them a dog. Can you imagine? And see, let's, let's, let's just make something clear. Dogs in this day were not like your pet. You didn't have, they didn't have like little pets in their house, right? They didn't have a little man's best friend that they took to the, to the park, you know, or like put in a purse and walked into a movie with or something, you know? They don't have animals like household pets as dogs. Dogs were unclean animals. Dogs were savage beasts. Like they did not believe in being near a dog. So to be called a dog would be a great insult. And here Paul uses the very language to turn it on them and say, watch out for the dogs. Watch out for the ones who are trying to decide who is in and out of the family of God. Can you imagine hearing those words as you're reading this? Like, oh wait, he's, wait, he's not talking about the, he's talking about us. He's not talking about the ones that we think are unclean and don't deserve to be a part of the kingdom. He's talking about me. Can you imagine being on the listening ear of that? So he's calling them this because he's disgusted by this. Paul doesn't want anybody to get out or to feel left out of the family of God. No one is excluded from God's family. So Paul uses this language and it's, it's, it's abrupt, it's forceful, it's harsh. Then he goes on and says, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Once again, he's talking about the Jewish Christians. He's talking about those who are following Jesus, but they're still abiding by the Jewish laws. And he says, he doesn't say circumcision. He says, mutilate the flesh. So he's using the actual language. Of, I mean, it's, 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 it's it, the imagery he's using, the story he's painting, the portrait he's creating is giving these Jewish Christians a real big idea of what Paul's trying to say. He's, listen, you think this, you think it's these things that get you in the family? No, you're wrong. You're dead wrong. Let me explain to you what makes you a part of the family. Mutilating the flesh, you believing in circumcision, doesn't make you any part of the kingdom of God more than anything else. You wanna be a part of God's family? Let me tell you how to be a part of God's family. Because to Paul, circumcision, physical circumcision had been replaced by a heart circumcision. He says in Romans, Romans 2, it's been replaced by the spirit of God over the written code. So it's no longer this, the physical circumcision was a symbol of what should have been happening in the heart. This is true all the way back from Deuteronomy though. Moses says the same thing. He talks about circumcision, but it's circumcision of the heart. And then Jeremiah the prophet says, oh, let you circumcise yourself, circumcise your heart. It's never been about the physical circumcision. It was always about what was going on in the heart. This is what makes you part of God's family. Not these things you have to do or these, these ways of being a part of traditions or, or, or value system or worth or where you find your confidence. Those things are not gonna keep you in the family. That's not gonna get you at the big table at Thanksgiving dinner. It's not what's gonna keep you in the family. So Paul makes this point clear. And apparently this is an ongoing issue. Now, I think this is why in First chapter one, uh, he says, I'm gonna tell you the same thing. Like I've already talked about this, but I'm doing it again because this issue of circumcision was the issue over and over and over again in the first century. They kept going, yeah, we're gonna follow Jesus, but like, but why aren't the Gentiles? They're not abiding by all our rules. They need to abide by this. And it's become such a big deal that in Acts chapter 15, Paul and Barnabas, they're in Antioch. It becomes such a big deal as they're trying to preach the gospel. These people are like, okay, well, do the Gentiles, are they still really a Christian? Are they a part of the family of God? Are they in the kingdom of God? even though they're not circumcised, it becomes such an issue because they could barely preach the gospel. They couldn't, they couldn't even get the, the, the gospel out because it becomes such an issue between the Jewish Christians and the Gentile converts. So then they go to Jerusalem to have a council with James, who was the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. They go to have a council to decide, okay, what are we gonna do about this? James, by the way, is the brother of Jesus. So they sit down, Paul and Barnabas with James, the council of Jerusalem are deciding, what are we gonna do about this? Because this is getting out of hand. Like all people wanna talk about is like, yeah, are they in the family? Are they not in the family? What qualifies them to be in the family? So then we see that they come to a conclusion in Acts chapter 15. You guys, let's stop this. We don't need to be burdened by this anymore. They write a letter that circulates to all the churches that says this, don't be burdened by the issue of circumcision anymore. Be done with it. 
So Paul has already talked about this and he's trying to reiterate, guys, we've been over this, over this and over this. It's not about the physical circumcision. It's about what's going on in your heart. It's about what Jesus has done for you. Stop focusing on these old things, these old patterns, these old traditions, these old rituals, these things that you think give you value, worth, significance. But the Jewish Christians had a hard time letting go. And that's why Paul uses the word dog. You're going back to these things that won't matter. They don't, why are you holding on to things that don't matter? So he says in verse two and three, for we are, in verse three, for we are the circumcision. Then he moves on. He's like, okay, so we're done with this, okay? We're the circumcision who, are, who worship by the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Who put no confidence in the flesh. What man thinks is important, what you think is important, what humans think is important is where we put our confidence, isn't it? What you value the most, what you think is, is it money? Is it sex? Is it relationships? Is it your status? Is it your pedigree, your ethnicity? Whatever you think is the most worthy of your time, your energy, your resources, that is what you put the most confidence in. And here Paul comes to eradicate all of it and says, no, you don't put any confidence in that stuff. The flesh, the stuff that's worthless and meaningless. This is what he's telling these Jewish Christians. You put all your confidence in where you come from, who you know, how, how much you know, who you're friends with, who you're, the line and the ancestry and the pedigree of your life. That's what you put your confidence in. This is ridiculous, he says. So Paul goes, when he says, put no confidence in the flesh, he is going directly against this Jewish mindset that your ancestry was the most important thing. This is the irony about it. You go back to the Old Testament and you think about the nation of Israel, why God created the nation of Israel. He created them to be set apart, to be different, distinct, right? Not to be like anybody else, not to be obsessed with with, with, with their, their pedigree or their grouping, it, they were to be set apart. They're supposed to be different. They weren't supposed to be like the Egyptians. They weren't supposed to be like the, the, other, the other people of the land, right? They're supposed to be different. So here's the irony of it, is that they're acting the same way now in, in, in Philippi as they were way back in Egypt or when they were in the land of Canaan, right? Why? Because they were so obsessed with their group. It was like my group. You know, this is, this is ethnocentrism of our day. This is me and my group are more important than you and your group. Do you know that's the very thing Jesus came to eradicate? This is the very thing Jesus went to the cross to get rid of. It's not you and your group against them and that group. You were never called to be that way. So Paul's upset by this. You can't have confidence. If your confidence is in your group, yeah, well, we all belong to this group and we all believe this thing and we all look this way and we all come from this place and we all speak this language. You are anti-gospel because it's the very thing Jesus comes to eliminate. He came to set us apart. We're not supposed to be like everyone obsessed with being the same, right? So here he comes and Paul is trying to emphasize this important point. It's not about it's not about being the same. More than ever, it's about being like Jesus, which would be different. Jesus was counter, counterintuitive, right? He flipped the world upside down. Everything he did was contrary to what you thought he should do. And so here we have, according to Paul, the real inheritors, the real inhabitants of God's family. We're not the ones who were gonna be just like everybody else. They were gonna be the ones who were different. And so he goes on to spell out his own Jewish credentials. Because see, they were so obsessed with their ancestry. Like in this day, the Jewish Christians would be like, oh, hey, um, I come from this tribe. What tribe do you come from? Oh yeah, like I can, I can link back all the way to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What about you? Where are you from? What tribe are you? Oh really? That's a decent tribe, but my tribe is better. They were so obsessed with where they came from. This ancestry, this pedigree. And so Paul comes and Paul's the best. He says this, who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. So he's gonna, once again, I love him. He uses his, their rhetoric on them. He just puts it back on them. I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Can you imagine the greatest one-upper of all time? Circumcised on the eighth day, what is, it, what is he talking about? He was born into the Jewish tradition. He was, he was born a Jew. He didn't convert into it. Circumcised on the eighth day. 
whose parents were Hebrews. He's immediately born into the family. He's, I'm of the people of Israel, comes from the nation. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. He identifies his tribe like, hey, oh, I know you're obsessed with your, uh, you're from Judah, cool, I'm Benjamin. A Hebrew of Hebrews. He spoke Hebrew. His family was the Hebrew tradition. He, deep, he has, goes deep into the, into the pedigree and ancestry of the Israelite people. As to the law, I'm a Pharisee. In fact, Acts will tell you that, that Paul studied at the feet of one of the greatest rabbis of the day. He learned from the best of the best. So he is of the best when it comes to a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. He was so obsessed with the orthodoxy of the Jewish traditions and customs that he persecuted Christians who did not abide by it. He had the most zeal. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. What does Paul mean? He obeyed the law perfectly. He didn't move out step of it, out of step. So here we have Paul, who has the greatest credentials, has more reason to conf have confidence in his, his background, his pedigree, his list and his resume and his job description, right? I, I think we could all agree, Paul probably would, 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 would have outside anybody else have the greatest credentials. Anybody, if he wants to boast, let him boast. So he lists this, but then he goes on and says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Jesus. What is Paul talking about? Why is Paul addressing this? Because Paul sees that all that stuff, all those things he found so much confidence in, all those things he found worth and value and significance in, that he once believed made him who he was, that gave him the joy and the hope and all that he wanted, he realized it didn't matter anymore. It wasn't, it, there was nothing about those things that gave him value. I mean, he was of the best of the best. He would have been of the upper echelon of the Pharisees. He had all the knowledge he needed. He had all the prestige and the pedigree. Like if you wanted to be cool, you'd be with Paul. If you wanted to be in the top of the top, you'd be with Paul. And yet for some reason, we see that Paul has this encounter in Acts chapter nine. Remember the road of Damascus. And Paul, by the way, was on his way to do some more damage. And somehow God intervened. He was feeling good about himself. He wasn't, you, don't you think sometimes, oh, people come to Jesus when they're in a low place. Paul wasn't feeling like he was in a low place. Paul was feeling good. Paul was feeling pretty good about his status and what he was doing. And all of a sudden, God encounters him on the road to Damascus. And all his value system, all his credentials, all his worth, all his significance, all his meaning got flipped, turned upside down. Everything was inverted when he met Jesus. So imagine this, before Jesus, Paul has this list of gains, right? His gains are like, I'm zealous, I'm, I know a lot, I abide the, by the law, I, uh, you know, I'm, I'm of the right pedigree, I'm of the right ancestry, I have all the right stuff, I have the right money, I have all the money I need, I have all the influence I need, I have all the friends I need, all I gain, his gain column was like a long list, right? It just went on and on and on. And then in his loss category, if he had a list for loss, he'd have one thing. His gain would be like, like you couldn't even read all the things that he, was, he felt like he'd gain where he found his worth and his significance. But there was one thing in his loss category before Jesus, and that was Jesus. There was one thing. He thought, maybe this Jesus movement is real. I don't know. Maybe he really is the king of the world. But to give up all this for that doesn't seem worth it. There'd be no meaning in that. But then he met God. Then he met Jesus. And then all of a sudden... This is what happened, and this is where Paul is different than many of us, and this is what's tricky for many of us in following Jesus, is in that moment, he didn't just move Jesus over to the game column. It got turned upside down. And all of a sudden, that game column had one thing, and that lost column had everything else. Just one thing. But for some reason for us, Oh my gosh, we meet Jesus and we add him to our gain column. Like, oh, now I have Jesus. Plus we kept a lot of the things that we still find that give us significance and worth and value and meaning. And in our lost column, we're like, mm, a couple things. I can, I can get rid of that. Maybe that's not as important. Maybe my health, okay, maybe, maybe I'm not gonna be stressed about it. Maybe my children. Maybe, maybe my bank account can go over there. Nah, it's too much, Lord. I'm gonna hold on to that one. But for Paul, he recognized in order to follow Jesus, in order to know him, and the surpassing knowledge, or the surpassing worth of the knowledge of knowing him, 
you had to have one thing in the gain column and everything else had to be counted loss. Man, that's hard. I woke up this morning like, I don't want to preach this because I don't know if I want to count everything as loss, right? Do we want to? It sounds, it sounds great, doesn't it? The idea of having Jesus and Jesus alone and putting all your hope and all your meaning and all your significance and all your worth in Jesus. But when it comes down to it, it's hard to count your family as loss, your health as loss, your spouse as loss. It's, it's difficult to imagine putting those things in a loss category. But why loss? Why does Paul have to, why can't Paul just be neutral? Why can't he just say, well, it's, it's, I have Jesus and I'm gonna be neutral in all these things? Because Paul knew this very, this reality was those things, those things will never compare to the one thing. And in fact, most of the time they distract you from the main thing. They keep you from focusing on the main thing. So you have an option here. You have Jesus and you let everything else be not as important as him. Or you have Jesus and you have these things that just keep you from really focusing on him, really knowing him, really trusting him, really having hope in him, having that Christian joy, even when life circumstances give you nothing but chaos. But Paul knew, I have Jesus and everything else I can count as loss. Why? Because when I gain Jesus, I gain everything. I gain everything. So he stands with this posture and this position of knowing that when you have Jesus, everything else can be lost. Everything else can be looked at. As he says, his word's rubbish. Rubbish is not even a good, is not even a good word for it. He can count them as rubbish. In, in other Greek, uh, another way of saying it in different translations, I think is a better translation or a better interpretation of it is dung, like poop. <laughs> My nephew was in the first service. He's like, why did Titi say poop when she's preaching? Because I can. <laughs> dung in this is, is, is honestly, it's, it's re relating to animal feces, to manure, to waste, to something you'd never want to go back to. That's what his old stuff, that's what his old life was. That's what all his other credentials were, dung. This was vulgar, by the way. For Paul to say this in the Greek would have been vulgar language. Like if he was sitting at your Thanksgiving table, you would have been like, oh, kids are at the table. We don't talk like this. Paul was vulgar. When he says, I count all of that, it's as if he's saying it's all crap. It's just a bunch of crap. Mom, is it okay if I say crap when I'm preaching? It's for the Lord. It's for the gospel. <laughs> it's all crap. It's worthless. It's meaningless. Compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. Those things in and of itself are not bad, right? It's not, they're not bad things, but compared to Jesus, compared to knowing him, and here's the thing, if any of those things keep you from knowing them, it's crap, it's poop. It'll keep you from knowing who Jesus is and, and what he's done for you and who he's made you to be. And see, the problem is so many of us can't just keep Jesus in the game column. We have Jesus plus a laundry list of other things we want to keep there. And we can't get rid of them and move them over to the lost because it's like, oh, it's too hard to get rid of that one. And what we don't realize is we're actually losing everything. We don't even have Jesus because we won't admit to ourselves and we can't allow ourselves to just trust him, to keep our eyes on just him, and to know just him. And this is what Paul spends the portion of this scripture, the majority of this text, trying to get across to these Jewish Christians who don't really understand what it means to be in the family of God. I'm going to tell you, this is what he said, I'm going to tell you how to be in the family. You count all that old stuff, those credentials, that ancestry, that, that, that pedigree, the stuff that you think made you a part of the family because you did circumcision, proud of you, whatever. If you want to, it doesn't matter. But that stuff doesn't matter in comparison to the beauty and the majesty and the wonder and the goodness and the amazing love of Jesus. It just can't compare to him. And so he goes on to say, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. He wants to become like him in his death. Man, I don't like that verse at all, right? 
that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings. How many of you woke up this morning and were like, hi, Jesus. Good morning, Lord. Good morning, Holy Spirit. Benny Hinn, remember that book? Good morning, Lord. I just want to share in your sufferings today. You know, I want to know you, and then I want to share in your sufferings. No one prayed that this morning, except for really spiritual people. Probably the, the ones that are closest to Jesus probably did. We don't pray that. But what we don't realize is in order to really know him, gnoskos, it's my favorite Greek word. It was probably the first Greek word I ever studied, gnoskos. There's two meanings usually throughout the New Testament. One is a knowledge of, like you study something and you, so you, you're aware of it, you know of something. Like I can know, I love biographies and I love movies based on true stories. So I, I watch them. I don't know those people, but I know about them, right? Because I read about them or I watched a movie about them. So I know about them. That's one way of interpreting Godoskos. You know about them. You know, you, you know things, you're acquainted. Or there's another way that Paul often uses this word, and this is a very intimate, personal experience. Gnoskos, you know Jesus because you've experienced him. You know him because you've encountered him. You know him because you're intimately connected to him. And this is the way Paul is using know in the scripture. But he then goes on to say, you know how you know? You wanna know how you know? Most of the time, the way you know Jesus comes and is shaped by suffering. We don't like that. Really, most of the time, the chaos of our life, the disappointments of our life, the suffering from our life is actually one of the best ways for us to know him. It prepares us, it got real quiet. Everyone's like, I don't wanna suffer. But do you wanna know him? Just kidding, they're like, I don't wanna know him. I want him in my loss category. What is she talking about? Think about Job. Job knew God. He was blameless, the Bible says. And he suffered and 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 suffered. And my God, he suffered. And in Job 42, the very end of Job, he says this, I had heard or knew or had known of you. This is what he says to God. I had heard of you or had known of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. How did he now know God? Because he suffered. And in his suffering, it shaped his knowledge and his knowing and his personal experience and his personal relationship with Jesus because he gave up things. When, you, when things are taken from you or you give up things, guess what happens? One or two options. You get closer to Jesus or you push Jesus away. Those are your options. But when you get closer to Jesus and you recognize that that God is involved in the chaos of your life and he's still in charge and Jesus is still good and still wonderful and nothing is outside of God's realm and space and goodness and majesty and beauty. All of a sudden you get to know him. You just know him. And knowing him far exceeds everything else. It just does. All of a sudden, the old credentials, the old things, the things you thought you wanted, the things you thought were the most important, the things you thought gave you meaning don't give you meaning anymore. It's like you get something new. This is me. People are like, I'll, I'll talk about clothes. You want to talk about clothes? You get something new, like you get a new coat. Last year's coat is meaningless, right? Because you got this year's. It's like you don't even care. It's like yesterday I was going through my closet. I'm like, oh, I forgot I had that coat because I got a new one. It's like you get something new when you get Jesus. That other stuff just is like, oh, I forgot about it. It doesn't have the significance and the power that it once had over my life. And this is what Paul is telling the Jewish Christians. You are holding on to things that don't matter. Doesn't bring you significance, doesn't bring you worth. It won't bring value into your life. You know what will me and me alone. Jesus is the only one that can bring that value and that worth that you are looking for. One preacher says this, I love it. He says, how do you count everything as loss and know Jesus? How will you know you've counted everything as loss? He says two things. One. You choose Jesus over everything else. That's how you know that you counted it as loss. If you can choose Jesus over everything else. And the other way, if I lose any or all things, good or bad, if I lost everything, good or bad, I still wouldn't lose my joy, my hope, my significance, my meaning, my worth. It wouldn't be lost, why? Because I didn't lose Jesus. That's how you know. That's how you know you've counted his loss, but you count Jesus as Cain because you know him. 
You don't just know about him, you know him intimately and personally. You have a relationship with him and he's more important to you than that thing you want, that person you want, those, those, those items you think you have to have, that life you gotta live, that money, amount of money you need, that house you need, that job you're desperately wanting, none of that matters. Where you come from, who you are, where you're going will never replace or be more important than who Jesus is. And never will be. But we still place value on those things. And oftentimes when we're placing value on that, we're devaluing who Jesus is. Because he's not the most important thing. How do we do this? It's like, this is so hard. And some of you are like, I don't think I can count. My children is lost. How could I do that? That seems morbid. God gave me this. How could I count them as loss? How could I count my spouse or my bank account or my job or my career or the talents and the abilities? God, how can I count all that stuff as loss? You know how you do it? I'll tell you how you do it. You look to Jesus. And you realize that all those things you have only come from God anyway. And they're not given to you to hold on to, they're, they're given to you freely so that you can be a good steward of these things. But they're not given to you because you're an own, you have ownership over them. You're a micro person in a macro world that God created. And those things aren't to be held like this or to be held like this. But Jesus is to be held with all of your might and all your heart and all your soul and every part of you needs to cling to him and, and to him alone. That's when you know you've counted it as loss and you count Jesus as gain. How was Paul able to do this? Was he superhuman? No, but my God, I wish he was because it would make all this life easier for us, right? If I could just say, well, Paul was just a better Christian than me. Paul was just better at this. But Paul says in a few verses down and Pastor Chris will probably talk about it next week. Verse chapter, chapter three, verse 17, he says, so imitate me, do what I do. Oh, great, Paul. So all that stuff you just said in verses one through 11, like we have to do that? Yeah, exactly. You wanna be a part of God's family. You wanna know what it's like to be on mission, to show the world God's goodness and his mercy and his love. You just, you gotta live like me. You gotta imitate me. He had an experience with Jesus. And so his knowledge of Jesus was real. His understanding of him was authentic and genuine and beautiful and majestic. Yesterday I was reading um, Psalm 8 in the message I'm gonna read it. It says, God, brilliant Lord, yours is a household name. Nursing infants gurgle, choruses about you, toddlers about the songs that drown out enemy talk and silence atheist babble. I look up at your macro skies, dark and enormous in your handmade sky jewelry, moon and stars mounted in their settings. Then I look at my macro or my micro self and wonder. It's this macro world and I'm a micro tiny person inside God's world. Why do you bother with us? Why take a second look our way? Yet we've so narrowly missed being gods, bright with Eden's dawn light. You put us in charge of your handcrafted world, repeated to us your Genesis charge, made us lords of sheep and cattle, even animals out in the wild, birds flying and fish singing, swimming, whales singing in the ocean steep. And then this is how it ends. God, brilliant Lord, your name echoes around the world. God, brilliant Lord, your name echoes around the world. I was reading this and I thought, my word, it's so easy in my life when everything's great. You have all the money you need, your relationships are good, you, your family's healthy, you're healthy, you're, you know, you're, you're in the position that you wanna be in, your job is good, everything seems to be good. You know, that's the scariest place to be because it's in that moment that you need to do one thing because you're, ba you're basically living off your credentials and your worth and your significance has come to everything's good right now, feeling good about it. You know what you need to do in that moment? Sit down, just sit down. Because when you sit down and the, and the world and the chaos around you and the dust of the world settles around you, all of a sudden you get a picture of God's macro world, the real world, God's world, not your world. And you see your tiny part inside God's world and all of a sudden it leaves you breathless. God's world will leave you breathless. 
What he's doing in the world will leave you breathless. What Jesus did on the cross should leave you breathless. When you get a picture of who he is and what he's done, not you, not your credentials, not what you could do, not who you are, but who Jesus is. It's Jesus that we live for. It's Jesus that we're about. It's Jesus that changes the world. It's Jesus. It'll leave you breathless if you let it. But why are you not breathless? Because you've let your world be shaped and your identity is shaped and your world and your significance and your meaning and your worth is all shaped by your credentials and by what you want and by what you have and by what you need. And all Jesus comes today to tell us is, you don't need it. All you need is me. I don't need my family. It won't won't surpass knowing me. What about my health? It's not as great as me. What about my bank account? Lord? What about my job? No, it's good, but it's, it's not as good as me. You want the best in this world? Find Jesus. You want all you want? You want the Christian joy and, and the Christian story to be on the inside of you? And you can say in every and every circumstance that you can rejoice in Jesus and that you're trusting him and that you believe in him. The way you get to that place is by simply trusting him alone. It's Jesus and Jesus alone. He'll leave you breathless if you let him. He'll change your world if you let him. You know how you get a part of God's family? You let Jesus invert your life. And all of a sudden what mattered doesn't matter because all that matters is the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus, who went to the cross for you, who has a plan and a purpose for you, who loves you more than anything or anyone or any circumstance or anything that you could hold on to. Nothing will surpass the goodness and the majesty and the beauty and the greatness of Jesus because he will leave you breathless. He'll leave you breathless because he's the one that we're searching for. He's the one that we desire. He's the one that will give you all the meaning and all the significance and all the worth in all the world because it's him that we live for. So what is the hardest thing? What's the hardest thing in your life to count as loss? If you wanna know him, if you wanna be known by him, if you wanna live this Christian story, if you wanna be like Paul, if you wanna live the best Christian life, what is it that's so hard to count as loss? What is it? What's that one thing you can't quite move from one category to the next? Jesus comes today, I think, to tell each and every one of us, it's time to move that thing. You wanna know me? Count that thing as loss. Would you stand with me this morning, church? Nothing will surpass knowing Jesus. Yesterday, when I read Psalm 8, and then last night, did you see that crazy sunset? How crazy was that? Like the most insane thing of all time. I I walked outside and I was like, oh my God, macro world. I'm this micro person in this macro world. It left me breathless. I looked at that, I was like, oh my God, it's about you. It's just about you, God. It's not about me. It's not about what I want. It's not about what I find worth and value and significance. And, And you know what? It's hard even this time of year, I think. It's hard to not put our significance in, in things. Many times we, we, we get discouraged because, because we recognize what we lack at this time of year, right? You don't have to worry. You don't need to fear. You don't need to be discouraged. You have Jesus. Thanks for listening to this week's message from Capital Christian. We hope you will stay connected by following us online. To find out more information, visit us at capitalchristian.com.